Thank you for tuning in. And welcome to a very special episode of the AEC Leadership Today podcast. One we can use right now as an encouragement for all firms, but especially for small firms who are too often told that successful leadership and ownership succession is beyond them. It's not, and it never has been. What is needed, especially now, however, is what our guest Tim Schroeder, president of Newman Munson Architects, walks us through. And as he does, pay particular attention to all the from-tos that Tim shares. From silos to cross-functional. From hierarchical to flat. From overwhelming to empowering. From closed to open, inclusive, and attractive. And from discontent and dissatisfying to deeply engaged and aligned. Also pay attention to the choices that were made by leadership to actively listen, learn, grow, trust, change, and evolve. Even and especially when all the details had yet to be figured out. Listen in too to the timing, to the catalysts, and to the strategies used to build the initial momentum needed to overcome the inertia of tradition and all that was known at the time. And finally, listen for the business decisions the firm made from the start to choose their own better future in terms of the type of work and clients that continue to drive employee engagement, pride, passion, recognition, while also making a real difference. None of which happened by accident or overnight, but did truly happen and is available to all of us right now. And given all the massive changes we've spoken much about in several recent episodes, I suspect that many of us may already be facing our own crucible moments should we take a minute to look around. So without any further delay, let's dig into the process of proactive organizational transformation and intentional legacy creation. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Tim Schroeder, President of Newman Munson Architects, and we'll be talking about firm transformation, succession, and legacy design. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks, Pete. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for being here. And uh, I'm excited to dig right in and talk about all that we're, we're set to talk about today. But as we start or before we start, can we get to know you a little bit? And um, in that context, could you share a little bit about you, your career, and what brought you to where you are today as president of Newman Munson? Sure. So um, Newman Munson was founded in Iowa City as a firm of four people. By 1991, when I joined the, as a summer intern, it had grown to seven people. Now, Kevin Munson had recently become president. He was succeeded Roy Newman who was in his 70s by that time. But having been around construction and drafting for much of my life, I got off to a pretty fast start. And after graduating in 94, I was soon executing projects largely on my own with Kevin's mentorship, of course. But And, and he was a guy that worked tirelessly day and night, and I tried to keep up with him. So pretty soon I was pestering him to become an owner. And by 2000, I became one of three owners and principals at, at Newman Munson. Um, a few more were added over the next decade. Uh, and each, the way we were set up, each would leave their own studio. 
which reported to Kevin. So graduating from college, my career goals uh, were one, to have a project published in Iowa Architect Magazine and, and number two, earn an AIA Iowa recognition for design. And by the end of the 2000s, both had happened multiple times. I had ended up serving actually as the editor of Iowa Architect Magazine and had received the AIA's National Young Architect Award. So it was a good decade for me and, and for the firm. We doubled in size, uh, up to 38 people by the end of the 2000s, growing even through the recession, thanks to our reputation, which was getting out there and, and uh, work spurred on by some local flooding. So by that time, I was, I was actually getting a little bit burnt out. And while I had emerged as maybe the heir apparent to be president, I, I didn't savor that thought by any means. And, and looking at Kevin's lifestyle, going from town to town, meetings every night, it it was downright not not appealing to me. So fortunately, which we'll get into, we were able to reinvent ourselves with more distributed responsibilities and, and ownership. And and I ended up becoming the third president at Newman Munson Architects in 2018. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Um, and, and we have a very um, parallel, similar parallel path uh, in our careers. Um, before we start diving into some of the, the transformation and, and the, the events around that transformation, can you share a little bit more about maybe the firm in terms of number of employees today, principals, and your areas of focus in terms of like marketplace, discipline, and geography? Sure. Now we, we still have a studio in Iowa City. There's 35 people there. And since uh, 2009, we have also have one in Des Moines, 10 people there now. Most of our work is still within a couple hours of each of those studios, uh, but that radius is, is starting to grow. We've always been a generalist practice with architecture and interior design under a roof. And and while we used to to have a hard time keeping up with the work that walked in the door for the sake of our financials and our employees, we're learning to be more selective of both projects and clients. So we're learning to be more proactive as well in seeking out new clients. Um, areas of focus for us are you know mixed use developments, healthcare, higher education, sports and leisure, corporate, and we take particular interest in projects with the potential for social and environmental impact. Um, we're also staying on the forefront of sustainable design, currently wrapping up the headquarters for the Stanley Center for Peace and Security, which is on target to be only the second renovation in the world to achieve a full certification as a living building. And related to the ownership, in 2015, we began broadening our ownership beyond the principles and calling this new tier of owners shareholders. And at the time, uh, we didn't want to, to add traditional titles as they seem kind of contrary to the flat, non-hierarchical uh, culture we were trying to cultivate. But um, the, you know, now we have seven associates five, no, seven, yeah, no, it's eight associates, seven associate principals, and five principals. So we've broken it down in those terms, and we'll, I assume, get more into that. Okay, yeah, because that was obviously a, one a part of the transformation uh, based on our mm -hmm. previous discussions, kind of expanding the 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 principal, uh, number of principals in, in the ownership in general. Mm -hmm. As In our past discussions, we you shared that 2012 was a very pivotal year and that sort of and in that year there was sort of an all hands retreat that sort of there was some epiphanies and challenges uh, uncovered and, and and changes were made from that point forward i, I want to talk specifically about that retreat but could you paint the picture a little bit about you know what what was life like at the firm uh between leaders and and um and, and the employees leading up to that 2012 retreat? Well, we had grown to 
41 people, I think, it, by the time we had that retreat. And, and we were quite the opposite of a flat, non-hierarchical organization. Uh, ownership and decision-making were, were tightly held. Share, shared trust and, and engagement were low. And as a culture, we were very reactive, not proactive at all. Decision-making rested in the hands of our remaining founder, who, who really meant well, but he was stretched thin and unwilling to let go. So that mindset pervaded the way all the principals, myself included, led their studios, which basically operated in silos from one another. So it was a culture where of you know power and control, not not at all humility and vulnerability. Leadership and outcomes were forced top down with little empowerment or engagement and and mistakes more so meant shame than opportunities to learn. So, and then, you know, I was part of the problem, having passively chosen to preserve that uh, for years. And did you, I mean, if you look back now, you have the, the, the words to articulate that you've got, cause you've gone through this, but at the time, could you identify that? Was there a feeling of something's off or were, were you like, oh no, no, we have these right now and we want to solve them. Or is it just sort of a feeling like, you know, I don't know that this is such a great place without the words to describe it. Well, there were things that happened that didn't feel right. And I ended up uh, being the one to solve, um, you know, disruptions or, you know, dissatisfaction within in the ranks. Uh, I would be the one that would try to get, get everybody together and, and solve those issues. Um, but yeah, it felt wrong, but yeah, in retrospect, it's a lot easier to articulate. Um, at the time I didn't know any better. I wasn't reading the books that I read now to, to kind of get a sense of how it should be. So I was just in the, in the bottle and didn't know what the label said on the outside. Right. So, so 2000. 12 there was an all hands retreat was that normal for the firm to number one have a retreat number two invite people in no it did never happen um so that was a big step we had never gathered everybody to get uh feedback but, but we had sensed a growing discontentment amongst the staff and and we felt it was time to gather everybody together and and hopefully set a vision a new vision for our future and so we we hired a facilitator who and the, the facilitator suggested that we uh, have a cross section of our staff plan the event. And this was something completely unheard of because the principals planned everything at that point. And at first, the planning team was just so disempowered, they were afraid to make any decisions. but but they they made it through, and we made space for them to trust in their instincts. Um, ultimately, the event was well-planned and and it did open the door to change, but not immediately. Um, expectations were very high after that retreat, but the, the staff was waiting for the principals to act. But having never taken time to work on the company, we were so overwhelmed by the, the projects once we got back to the office, we were back at it with the projects and, and soon forgot about the, the retreat and, and or couldn't get to any of those issues. So that our call to, call to action came a few months later when several people were frustrated and threatened to leave. And, and I think had that happened, many more would have because there was that much discontent. But after, after several meetings of that group and, um, and, you know, we had some focus groups that we met with. We, my project load was lessened and I was charged with leading a, a change effort. So um, there was that, there was that investment <clears throat> to make it happen. You, there was actually a hey, Tim, one more thing to do go. It was, I'm lightening your load. So now you can focus on some of those strategic elements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you yeah. were at the retreat, were, were there any sort of ahas when the principals and the employees sort of said, agreed on what the 
process would be moving forward or what some of the issues were and what some of the biggest opportunities was there general agreement and then we just because we got busy just didn't follow through initially or was there even coming out it was well we agreed on some things but there was still a disconnect in mindset or how maybe some of the best ideas were to move forward i want to just kind of talk about mm -hmm. the retreat and then kind of talk about your steps afterwards well for the staff i think there was a unanimous uh or the the biggest thing we heard was that they wanted to take more pride in their work we had these studios that had were operating within silos different priorities some were doing well at design and uh others didn't prioritize design and and so design was going to be a high they wanted that to be a high priority coming out of their retreat but what we observed as principles was that there was a big gap to be bridged between the staff's understanding of our practice and our understanding of the practice and and you know they there didn't seem to be any concept of the notion of um, responsibility to our clients or our or the firm's financial success which was no surprise because client relationships were maintained by the principal staff was not privy to financials and our reward system was seen as an entitlement so those were our takeaways um but we did prioritize design coming out of the retreat we also made some other changes when you personally were were coming out of that retreat did you have hope or did you say see oh my goodness i, I don't know that we can get out of this but what was your kind of personal thought after your kind of decade of success and kind of moving forward maybe the heir apparent were you like, oh, good, now we can move forward or, oh, no, now we have to move forward? No, it was, it was scary. I, I, <laughs> the facilitator on the, we thought maybe she would have clarified some things to the staff to educate them. And we thought that was going to happen on the bus ride home. It didn't. So we were left leaving there feeling like we were really the bad guys <laughs> in the whole thing. So that was a little overwhelming. I didn't mind the focus on design, um, prioritizing that. I didn't know how we were going to get there. Um, so it was, it was scary. So you had mentioned um, the months afterwards, there was sort of the, I don't know if there was maybe just concern amongst people with hey we just came out of that retreat we're not doing anything what, what what was that like what were people coming to you and saying and and what sort of prompted the okay now let's free tim up to start kind of taking a lead on some of this what what was some of that feedback a, a few months later well i was uh meeting with all the people that were threatening to leave uh, one by one and the one that did end up leaving um just said to me you're not capable of change as we were saying that you know we're really going to try this but they said it's not going to happen so that that was a big uh turning point for me personally to try to prove them wrong basically <laughs> which uh you know it lit a fire for me it it helped me take a more pro proactive stance than a versus a passive one and try to move things forward so but there were and, you know a lot of other people that took part in it too because obviously a, a lot of other people wanted to um create change as well right and and you did i mean the firm from based on our conversations of the firm did trans um definitely transformed and you know went from you know where it was to an alignment around mission you know leveraging the generational differences versus sort of complaining about differences and pushing down that decision making having people bought in um prioritizing constant revolution like all kinds of really good stuff but uh, how did it happen i mean obviously it, it a lot of things did happen but could you kind of walk us through like how, what was the process involved in I would suspect it was people had to sort of step up and then other people sort of had to seize control and it was probably messy and uncomfortable. And could you share a little bit about what that transformation took, uh, what it looked like and how long it took? 
you know, yeah. I mean, there was it took a long time to build momentum, but and there were we started with long lists of which we had on Excel spreadsheets of low hanging fruit, and and gradually the challenges got harder and harder. But a couple examples, um, we to address our observations of what we were seeing at the retreat, we made the project financials transparent trained the staff to manage the resources within our our walls and our and manage our clients and along the same lines transitioned our retirement plan the one seen as an entitlement to a profit sharing plan then started providing quarterly reports on all our ups and downs and our projections for for where we were going to be so people could see you know you know a better perspective and all this reinforced the concept that nothing's an entitlement, that only through our collective contributions can we generate that holistic and, and shared success. So that allowed us to transition from these siloed fixed teams or studios into more of a strengths-based alignment and with agile project teams. And, and we were also working to decentralize and, and this wasn't planned, it just happened as we empowered people, but we decentralized the decision-making using that cross-sectional retreat planning team as a precedent for how we would move ahead. And, and with that same model established a, a team focused on quality assurance within our walls, because we knew we couldn't focus on design excellence if we couldn't put the documents together to get the thing built. So, and that became a precedent for several other strategic teams. So in, as the staff felt more and more empowered, it opened the door to these grassroots staff-led initiatives that, that really disrupted the, how we had, had done things before. So now we have these six strategic teams and they, they engage most of our staff in not only their own project success, but in, in every project success, as well as the constant evolution of our, all our processes. So oh. go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say there's a, there's a few things I wanted to just kind of touch on. I mean, the entitlement versus the profit, can you share a little bit kind of as specific as you can with the, what was it like and how did it change, you know, from that sort of entitlement? Yeah. Well, at the end of each year, we would look at the profit and say, can we do our 15% distribution to 401ks for everybody. And we would say, oh, sure. And we just kept doing it and then it became expected. So it was just part of the compensation. But then uh, it, to change it, we looked back over the years and, and took an average of what we were distributing to that out of the profit sharing or our, out of our profits. It ended up being about, 25% of all profits went back into that profit sharing when we ended up making a profit sharing program. And um, basically if we hit our profit goal, everybody gets an additional 15% added to their income, but it goes into a 401k. If we come in lower, you know, it's ratcheted up. If we come in higher, then they get a cash bonus for whatever it is over that. So it's, worked out really well. It, it seemed to get everybody on the same page as far as we, we all need to work together to create a profit here and, and realize that that is something we all need to be focused on for sure. And then opening up the books on a project that you were able to now have that information and then have those discussions mm -hmm. to be able to kind of grab that engagement. And we've never slapped anybody on the wrist for not having a project be profitable. It's, but it, at least it's like the having the number of calories for a Big Mac on the menu. You maybe decide not to have two of them. Right. <laughs> um, a couple. What you mentioned um, the in, investing in some of these strategic initiatives. How did you do that? I know a lot of firms struggle with do we have a strategic plan? We have these initiatives, but we're not touching utilization rate. This that's in your second forty. I just magically want that to happen. I mean, did it? just sort of magically happen with people's times because they were so excited about the opportunity or was there actual like planning the investment in terms of like 
backing off on utilization goals? How, how did that happen? Because it's a messy process for a lot of firms, even just yeah. to plan out how you would implement something strategic. Yeah, I think uh, coming from where we were to this new, um, you know, it did take a while, but people were very excited to take part in and making a difference. So there was that excitement. People were getting their work done faster to be able to do this. I think some of that excitement wanes over time. So we've got to keep an eye on that. And um, and while we want to keep those groups open for anybody to join, we we do need to keep an eye on you know how much time they are spending on billable work. So it's always a balance, but. You know, the other thing is we have a way to fall back when the work isn't there. You know, we have that profit sharing system and that allows us to have kind of a safety valve on our, our, in our, you know, what we're spending on salaries. And we, you know, in our history, we've never had to lay anybody off for lack of work. And we credit having that system for part of that. And so when we have a lack of work, we have these strategic endeavors to fall back on and everybody can take part in them. Um, so that's, that's part of it. And then, you know, as we get busy, people are able to put less time in them, but we've got to have the work in the door. We got to win the work. And if we have the backlog of work to create the revenue, and we can meet the deadlines to keep that revenue coming in the door, the profitability of each individual project doesn't matter and utilization really doesn't matter either unless somebody's way out of whack on the scale of things. Okay, well, th thank you for that. And definitely the, I see the balance of that, even the strategic use of when we invest in those initiatives, it's maybe not when we're so super busy, but when some of those, those pockets come. Mm -hmm. The last, kind of question I had was the decision-making. Was it hard for some of the principals to give up decisions? Like what were some of the decisions that were sort of given up or, you know, sort of shared decisions until we're comfortable and now we know you can make decisions? I mean, was it sort of abdication or did we sort of walk through some of those together? Can you share a little bit about what it was like to share decision-making and what types of decisions? Well, I, I think... I don't know if I have a specific example, but you know, we we were learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable, basically, as the as the, everybody else was learning to take more ownership. So we we shifted from that mindset of power and control to a mindset with a little more humility and vulnerability, um, and, and loosening the grip on the reins. So, yeah, we had to stop. You know, when we wanted to complain about generational differences, we, we needed to start thinking in a different way and, and leverage those. We, we needed to be open to the idea of change instead of stifling ideas for change. Um, and, and we needed to kind of, if there's Carol Dweck and the idea of the growth mindset versus fixed mindset, probably the biggest thing was to, to, shift that mindset um, to believe in our staff and 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 invest in them and create the conditions for their success we read books as a group the oz principle was one of the first ones multipliers was another one that came later and those books enabled us to have a shared vocabulary to as our culture shifted uh, to to be able to have some language to fall back on to say, Hey, you know, you're being a bit of a diminisher here or <laughs> that sort of thing. But, um, so that helped, but, um, you know, we had a great team that was willing to step up and, um, share ideas. We shared a lot of Ted talks on, uh, the, a better way to lead and, and things like that, that all helped us move forward. But, I think it was that crucible moment when we felt like there was going to be a big exodus that made everybody really shift their thinking from what it had been before. 
So the, almost like a, almost a, a, almost crisis moment said, okay, mm-hmm. but, but that willing, I mean, cause I mean, the, those catalyst moments, right. I mean, but it seemed like y'all got on the same page pretty quick and just started learning about new ways to think about things and, and approach things from that, that humble and shared, mm-hmm. shared mindset, abundance mindset. So how, how long did that take? Was that sort of an immediate and then we learned the language or was that like, well, we had just a sort of about a year later, we could see that we were changing. I mean, I just, I want to be able to talk about this because this transformation of organizations does not happen until a leader or a leadership team has wants that transformation to happen and has sort of a vision of how they want to transform. So where does it happen in a pretty quick period? I'd love to just make sure we understood like what happened and how quickly it, it, it or how long it took to happen. I think we were seeing inklings within an, a year. We had another retreat and the book we were focused on at that point was um, Good to Great. And you know, we had some presentations on that. And in the background through that first year, the the principals were sharing articles and, and reading Books like I think, uh, Design for Change or Leading Change, which was all about creating small coalitions and small successes to generate a little bit of, of momentum and hope. And I think by that the end of the first year, we had a little momentum and a little hope. But then in the years to come, you know, we went on a, a we started to, it was maybe not until 2015 that we, we really started to see that we were making significant change and we had a a retreat. I I guess it was at the end of 2014 where we set out. uh, The idea was that, you know, we wanted to break through to, to change, but in retrospect, we had already sort of been on that path. Um, So I don't know if that answers your question. It, but. it does. It, 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 so it seems like like at least two years before you started seeing the results mm-hmm. of what you had really been investing in for at mm-hmm. least a couple of years after a moment of saying, we need to change. But it almost took a lot of investment and two years to say, I think we're on the right track here. Yeah. Um, in 2015, I believe you, in well, up in between the 2012 and into 2015, I mean, you were definitely seeing the change in the organization. There was more sort of ownership in project success and, and strategic initiatives. But around that time, though, I, I recall that you actually opened up for actual ownership, like fit financial ownership in the firm. What, what was in, was it, what made the decision? What was your decision to expand the ownership? Uh, what went into that decision and, and what did that sort of look like versus other options that you may or may not have considered? Well, that that step was all about creating a legacy. And even at that retreat I was just talking about at the end of 2014, we put together a video that was talking about that breakthrough to change and, and it spoke to how, you know, if we do this, we can create a legacy. And so, you know, after we had proven we could overcome the inertia of, you know, not not changing and, and create new change, we had a this talented team that was full of uh, hope. And so we wanted to offer to them, you know, more than the traditional firm model of this tightly held ownership and a glass ceiling for all others. So we thought it would deepen our team's commitment, engagement, and alignment around our mission to, to drive positive change. And, and and it did after a few years though, you know, we had that system with just shareholders. Each of them had the opportunity to buy in 1% of the firm or five shares. And, um, you know, that got a little stale. There was no next steps there. So we needed to invent the next steps and that that came in in 2021 um i think the pandemic helped us get our thinking there but um that was what really when we started 
thinking, how do we structure this moving into the future and really take an, um, a deeper dive into how we design the system of broadened ownership prior to that? So we, we had, uh, you know, five principals and, and basically 15 shareholders that had 1% of the firm that were sitting there waiting for us to say what the next step was. So what was, uh, so maybe take us to, to 2021. What was that in, invented next step and what, what did that look like? So it, it took a while to develop, but we, we set out three goals and one that was to, you know, create a future unencumbered by debt to retirees. And, you know, because a key concern and a question that was coming up is, is that we had four principals, myself included, that would retire in the 2030s. So how do we pay, pay them off when they retire? The second, uh, the second goal was to minimize career plateaus, speak to that glass ceiling you know, that, that most firms have. So how do you minimize that and create on, ongoing opportunities for growth and rewards? And the third was to establish this, um, you know, kind of a virtuous, sustainable and transparent methodology for advancement, which is kind of aspirational, but, um, you know, because what I was learning in, in doing some research is that you can insert hierarchy and that's not a bad thing when everyone understands why somebody's advancing and what the process was. So, you know, we had some constraints to our, we had a value, a valuation formula that we've remained, it's remained the same for 30 years. Our shares are always purchased by the firm. They're sold to individuals by the, you know, by the firm um, and, and per that valuation formula, they're never gifted. And if you leave before retirement age, you receive only a, your hard asset value, your shares, which might be uh, two thirds or half of the total value. And lastly, to make sure we're always passing the baton to the next generation, you know, you got to retire by the time you reach age 70. So those were some of the, what we set out to establish in the fixed components of it. But the first goal, the, the that financial one was the biggest hurdle to come to get over. And, and, um, so you know, we modeled debt to retirees for decades into the future. And so, you know, while right now we have debt to only one retiree, our, this broadened ownership concept is going to bring with it this ongoing cycle of retirements of current and future shareholders. So that debt to retirees peaks in the 30, 2030s, and we took steps to manage what it seemed insurmountable. It, we limited the number of shares one can retire with, and, and we reduced this onerous 15-year retirement buyout that we had down to seven years, which helped reduce the liability. Um, but even a reduced liability is quite a burden to your operations if you don't have a mechanism to pay it. So um, we created this trust, and into that trust, all of the, the assets that come in from the purchase of shares are, are put into that trust and with, with investment, that trust is projected to match the peak liability that we're gonna have in the future. And after that peak liability, it can be a source of revenue. Um, so our operations are never, we totally separated our operations from the transactions associated with, with ownership. So Previously, we were taking uh, distributions when somebody bought shares, we would just take those as distributions and it would, um, we didn't even kind of calculate the, what we were paying or, or what was coming and going. So I'm embarrassed to say that, but. Now we've got a better system. Right. So, so the, <laughs> the financial mechanics of that is is ultimately with, okay, we want to sell this many shares. And I, I do want to talk about the added hierarchy and what that looks like. 
mm-hmm. uh, in the firm. But there's so there's a certain amount of shares that are going to be bought. But that money from sales will go into a, tron, a, a trust that will then be used to sort of pay off shareholders. So there's almost a separate financial mechanism now. Is that mm-hmm. what I understand that that? So it's it's possible. It's not just the 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 pinch on operating cash and going to banks and different things is actually a whole separate mechanism that you've modeled and set up for, for the stock sales. Mm -hmm. So Tim, I'd like to ask you how you mentioned that you have added hierarchy. What are the, the different levels you added within that hierarchy and how do you determine ownership and levels of responsibility and sort of separate an ownership role or, or link ownership with responsibility? What, what, what does that look like? Well, it's a little different in our organization because that opportunity to take part in our strategic efforts begins when you, as soon as you join the team. So you, you can join one of those strategic initiatives and be part of that. And, and so by the time you become an associate, uh, or the first stage of ownership. We have associates, associate principals and principals. Um, you have a good sense of our whole practice. Um, and you know, it, it's as you become an owner, that advancement requires an invitation. Uh, there's also a minimum level of ownership associated with each of the stages. Um, so an associate has to have a minimum of five shares. Uh, uh, associate principal has to have a minimum of 15 shares and a principal needs to have a minimum of 25 shares. But with those, we have responsibilities defined, although they overlap, they kind of basically they, they grow from an associate is somebody that has gained everyone's trust in being able to manage clients and projects to the, uh, you know, a high level of performance. As you move to associate principal, it's, there's more of the business development aspect added to their role. And then by the time you're a principal, it's more of a perspective of up and out and fostering client relationships and business development and, and coaching excellence out of the project teams. But the project teams are, aren't are necessarily led directly by the principals. They're more higher level coaches, if yeah. that, that helps. How, it, yeah, and how do you, when someone becomes an owner uh, or associate slash owner, how are they selected? So that uh, goes back to this idea of this virtuous process, now, um, which is, as I mentioned, aspirational. So, you know, we we're continuing to evolve this process, but we know advancement can happen for the wrong reasons: favoritism, politics, or somebody just is a bit of a bully and demands to be a shareholder. Um, that all can lead to processes veiled in secrecy and a a lack of trust but you know and there's also this issue of everybody wants a checklist of how they become an owner so as principals what we feel is if we do a good job educating all our shareholders on what it will take to have a holistically successful practice in the future we can trust the outcome to their vote so as we invite new owners or determine who's going to advance to the next tier of leadership, uh, it's one vote per owner. We don't vote by shares. So, you know, and while we're careful not to share information that could embarrass anybody by the maybe perhaps lack of votes or something, this, this is a process that can be transparent to all the owners and when the timing's appropriate, it can be a, transparent to all the staff and so we in early 22 when this all was set into action for the the rest of the staff we were able to give a whole presentation to everybody on why uh why we moved forward um who what the voting was and and who 
took the was moved to the next tiers. Um, so the idea is, how does one advance? If they ask that question, it's it's simple. They earn the trust and confidence of their colleagues. Is the answer. And that was the, and so you built that hierarchy by design in there for the advancement, and that's the career plateaus that you don't want to have happen. How mm-hmm. do you, how do you think about? I mean, there's sort of the vertical leadership of, you know, I'm going to be client facing, maybe external facing versus the sort of, I'll call it like horizontal leadership with I'm a subject matter expert and maybe I'm speaking technically at conferences. Is that, how how do you think about that in terms of the, the career progression or plateauing or in respects to ownership? Because sometimes there's the, well, if you're not out finding the work, you really can't be an owner around here versus a a subject matter expert. How how do you approach that in terms of like career plateauing and career growth? Yeah, that's part of it. I don't know that we have a really good definition of that, but you know, that is outlined in the rules for each of those uh, tiers of ownership as a, as a associate, you know, you're expected to be providing a, a leadership role in one of those strategic teams uh, and and making a difference there. As you move on to associate principal, you're expected to start finding where you can be a subject matter expert outside the firm and moving that expertise beyond the walls of our 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 firm. And then as a principal, that's an expectation too that that you're out there. Uh, you're promoting our firm in more more ways than just winning work. How um, I suspect coming out of that 2012 retreat into the 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 work that you've advanced and even getting people to sort of be excited about the future and plan some of those strategic um, new initiatives. And then in 2015, people becoming at least a larger group becoming one percent shareholders. I suspect their engagement level, you've seen it increased either in numbers or you just felt it at the firm. Have is that continued when you added in, you know, sort of those those three tenants you just spoke about with, hey, we have a financial plan now for you to be able to buy more. We're addressing the career plateauing. We have this virtuous cycle. Have you felt or seen or measured even greater employee engagement with that? Well, we we do take every six months an assessment on you know engagement and our thirty three criteria for our cultural strength that it, there it's called the gap M, um, and that is continuing to be on an upward swing. It's continued on an upward swing since two thousand seventeen when we started it. So we have that as a measure. As I mean, we can see, you know, observe uh, that that our new associate principals are engaged at a total, totally different level than they had been. Um, and similarly with the associates, uh, they have, especially now that, you know, as this plays out in 2025, three of those associate principals will move to principals to be principals and that'll be a space for three of the associates to move to associate principals and, and, and we'll add, add more owners. So this is a constantly evolving system that we've, we've, we've designed it out for 40 years. Um, you know, it's, it's a framework, but you know, we've got a good system in place to, to foster you know, ongoing purchases that everybody has the opportunity to buy five shares every five years. That's a that's something you request. It's not a guarantee. You know, as long as you're on your career trajectory, you you would have that opportunity. So that's that part of that ongoing reward system. You know, within your um, category of ownership. So, for example, the associate is five to fifteen shares. Associate principals, fifteen to twenty-five shares, and 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 a principal can own up to seventy-five shares. So, over the last decade, there was a major change of leadership mindset. 
obviously expanded ownership, uh, more defined roles as far as expectations and how the firm works. And you've done this market shift towards design in that process. And I, I know from our conversations and what you've shared, I mean, the, the firm has won a lot of design awards. As part of this, and again, in addition to the leadership and the expanded ownership and the defining roles, has the shift to more design work or more expertise work or has there been sort of part of your success as the type of work that you're doing or shifted into? Because you mentioned at the beginning, sort of being more selective with clients or thinking about that, the types of projects. How has that sort of aided in um, your success? Well, yeah, awards aren't everything, but we're competitive and and we do pursue awards. So, you know, and they can be a measure, and they were a measure of the our shift in trajectories. So in design, we went from a firm that received its first ever state recognition in 2003 to receiving over 60 state and regional AIA design recognitions over the past decade. Um, and that, that was on a pace doubling the success rate of all other firms in the state and region for a while. Um, and our little firm in Iowa has added a prestigious national AIA recognition in each of the past four years. So that's been quite a run. Uh, we've, but that's not our only focus now. We've expanded as we, we gained confidence in design, we were able to round out our practice. And so we've earned nine regional and national recognitions for employee experience, 15 national recognitions for client experience. And, and two of our mentees now have gone on to receive the National Young Architect Award now. So that that's quite fulfilling to see happening with our next generation. And and do you, I mean, it's just, I guess maybe I'm asking a question just a little deeper in another way. I mean, how big of a role do you think it is to have work that excites the employees, excites the firm and, and to be award-winning to just validate that great things are happening and that you're, they're making an impact and you are driving change by design. I mean, how the type of work and what you pursue, I mean, could definitely a big part of that, our that's a big piece definitely a big part of engagement i mean that's reading all the books that's what brings meaning and purpose to what we do um you know whether it's on the sustainable pursuing sustainable excellence or you know the social impact uh we we work locally uh, you know we have a aggressive volunteer package for our employees where we sponsor 24 hours of volunteer time for community efforts and 24 hours of, of uh, professional volunteerism annually. But we also work with local entities like Shelter House of Iowa City. We partnered with them for the past decade and, and have helped create a regional precedent for how to approach um you no know, low barrier um housing which has really helped break the cycle of homelessness here in iowa city so and, and now we're, we've just finished a study for the city of lincoln nebraska so that's great to see that that's picking up momentum um so we're, we try to engage in many facets of what brings fulfillment to our team not just one focus on just design is excellence, for example, we, we want to focus on sustainability, we want to focus on social change, and, and all of those. And, and all of that seems mm -hmm. to, well, at least the, the, the focus on design came out of the 2012 retreat, listening mm -hmm. to the staff, your kind of moves into the, the social and environmental space and sustainable design, did that, that also come from just kind of listening, or this is the direction we want to go? Yeah, I think, um, we came out of that first retreat with that uh, design excellence being that highest priority. But as we picked up a little momentum there, we we were hearing the other voices that, you know, it's not just about that. It's about, you know, these other things too. And, and so we tried to, to create a well-rounded practice where, where all of those things can bring reward to people and people can pursue their passions. 
and I, I want to be respectful of your time. We, we've mm -hmm. covered a lot of ground here. I was curious at some of the ESG, we're kind of speaking about the environmental, social, mm -hmm. and governance. Obviously, you're into that space. How how do you see that moving forward? And, and I was, you know, as far as carbon neutral design and, and really some of those, you know, not just nice things to do, but we really, we need to do this. And um, some of the requirements on the, the design industry to be able to do that, or really that's our moral obligation. How do you think about, or maybe approach, approach ESG overall, e even though you're doing it, how do you think as an industry, we might be needing to approach that? And I was curious too, it, it's just some of the advanced technology, like how are you approaching that um, in this, this time of massive change and on the technical front? Well, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're pretty much paperless at this time. And it, we're in the process of redesigning our office, uh, which we moved into in Iowa city, which we moved into in 2006. And at that time it was all designed about around 30 by 42 sheets of paper, which we never use anymore. So we're going to condense our desks and, and, and have much smaller workspaces and then private areas to go to, to have our conferences. Um, as far as, you know, you know, we're using BIM. So every pro every project we have is totally modeled. Uh, and, and then we're constantly, one of our new strategic teams is our tech integration team, which is constantly looking at software, doing energy modeling, daylight modeling, because there seems to be one, a, one for every day of the week. And we've got to find the one that best works into our workflow. So that's, that's a constant evolution. As far as something like um, chat GPT, we haven't put our arms around that yet, <laughs> but it'll be soon submitted to our tech intelligence team here. But um, <clears throat> with regard to ESG, I don't think that's something we pursue consciously externally, other than that we seek out projects where we can have a social or environmental impact. <clears throat> and, you know, we do try to live, um, you know, walk the walk. So I mentioned that we had the Stanley Center for Peace and Security that's just opening its doors. And that'll be a, a living building. In the redesign of our studio here in Iowa City, we're following those principles and, and looking for ways that we can bring that to a more affordable level um, so we can bring it to more of the of the population, more of our clients. And so that's a constant evolution. We want, we're practicing on ourselves. Um, and we do... Have had a third-party verification of our governance um, through the International Living Future Institute. We have a just label, and and when we we did that in 2020, and we re-upped in 2022 this year, a few months ago. And when we did that, we were we had achieved, I think, um, only second to one other company in the world. We were achieving the, the most levels possible. So uh, we're doing pretty well on that front. Um, Great. And what, what mm -hmm. is that just certification? What is it to be quickly? What is, what is that? Well, it, it's, it looks at, well, I can't remember how many metrics, but it, it's uh, maybe 20, 24 different metrics on what are your practices with regard to uh, diversity and inclusion and, and, um, you know, gender equity and pay practices and, and it gets into, you know, the sustainable products and supply chain and everything down to the food that we order for our internal events and, um, and then how engaged we are in our communities to improve our communities, like the volunteerism aspect and uh, what, what benefits we provide to our employees with regard to healthcare and retirement and all of those things. So it's, it's pretty holistic and you need to provide a lot of documentation to, to 
achieve and then, then they score you, you can achieve either no levels, one level, two level, or three level, or four levels for each of those categories. Well, congratulations on that. And well, and I, I mean, as we look to close here, I, I mean, it's been a only a decade, like just sound like major transformation from what we've been just talking about 2012 to 2022-23, major transformation in, in only a decade to some degree. It's like it took a decade, but only a decade because that sounds like just major transformation. What what advice would you have for other firms, particularly smaller firms that might be looking at life today is like it was for you back in 2012, but I don't have a decade or I don't want it to take a decade. I mean, what, what advice would you have for other firm leaders or owners who would like to go through this type of transformation? Is it just sort of um, just listen to what we did and just try to implement that? I mean, what advice would you have now having gone through it and having the eyes to see back a decade? Well, I don't know. It would be, you know, without a crucible moment, it's hard to make uh, a, a change. So, but yeah, you know, step out from your comfort zone, believe in your team, keep that uh, and open versus a fixed mindset and, and make a positive difference. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything we've learned through our own evolution, it's that we must We've got to remain vigilant and that we've got to keep evolving, um, questioning that status quo. And even even when it was once something we maybe invented in the before. Um, so it's learning to question each other, empower each other and, and build that trust has been essential for what we've seen as a trajectory shift. And that's not by any means saying we got it all figured out. We're still working on things, but <laughs> right, um, oh, a, yeah. a process. Mm -hmm. And it 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 didn't happen overnight, but it didn't happen by accident either. So I mean, mm -hmm. all, all of that goes into play. well. Some of it happened by accident, but I think it was by good intention that it fell into a happy accident. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, you also like, do you have good luck or did I position myself to be able to take advantage of opportunities that fell my way? I mean, I, mm -hmm. you, know, you work hard. Do you really have good luck or you just kind of, you're there to receive the good things that happen because you're kind of working in a directionally correct um, mm -hmm. way. And anything else um, that you'd like to share or add that we didn't specifically cover today? You know, thinking about, you know, firm transformation, succession and legacy design. No, I, I, I can't think of anything. I, I just uh, I hope this is helpful. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out, I'm certainly happy to answer any questions that I might have muddled in our interview here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, just for, for that. So how, how specifically can listeners get in touch with you uh, to learn more about you and, and the remarkable transformation that you've had with the firm? Well, certainly email me and uh, I'll, I'll say what my email is and then maybe spell it. But uh, so that's tschroeder at newmanmunson.com, um, T-S-C-H-R-O-E-D-E-R at N-E-U-M-A-N-N-M-O-N-S-O-N.com. All right. Thank you. I, and I'll make sure there's a link to that and the firm uh, in oh, the show notes too. Um, well, Tim, thank you very much. I, I appreciate you walking through this because I know you're a humble person and the firm is humble, but you've done remarkable things. And um, to see this transformation happen and to every time we talk, I, you share a little bit more and a little bit more. And I'm just uh, very impressed. And I know there's a lot of particularly smaller firms that want to do incredible things and sometimes, you know, are told, well, you don't have the resources, you can't do this, you're too small. And you need to, you know, um, look at other options. And, and I think that's just what you and your team have been able to do is um, definitely an inspiration for, for a number of, of firms that want to have this legacy and and transition from the as is to the the as could be in, in the way they want it to be. Well, yeah, and it I'm just lucky to be surrounded by so many great talented people that are driven to drive the ship in the same direction. So 
it's been a pleasure. All right. Well, thank you again. And I look forward to um, connecting with you next time. All right. Thanks, Pete. We'll see you. Take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. For joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.